Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, Professor Jonathan Sarna. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. We are recording today because you've come out with a new edition of American Judaism, published in 2019. It's a revision of what was published in 2004 under the same title. And we'd like to explore with you the content, the previous content, the new content, you know, the kind of things, thought processes that have been going on for you as you originally composed the book and some of the new additions that you've included. So without further ado, tell us about who you are, what your position here is at Brandeis, and then I have some questions that we'll we'll follow along with. Well, thank you, Rachel. It's really a pleasure. Uh, to be here um, with you. Um, uh, I uh, am the Joseph H. and Bellar Braun Professor. I'm also University <laughs> Professor here at uh, at Brandeis. That, that's a long-winded way of saying I teach American Jewish history and, mm-hmm. and have done so for um, my entire uh, career. Um, and um, uh, American Judaism was really uh, my response to a sense that there wasn't a one-volume synthetic mm. story of Judaism. There were books on Jews, but if you wanted to know why American Judaism looks the way it does, why do we have all these movements? Where did they come from? Mm. Uh, how did they grow? and so on, you had nowhere to go. And indeed, non-Jews who wanted to understand Judaism really didn't have any uh, history book that they could turn to. Um, I had three audiences in mind. Uh, One uh, was Jews who wanted to know that history. Uh, One consisted of non-Jews, people in American religion, or anybody interested in that history. And then actually the third audience from the start were Israelis who wondered, why is American Judaism so different Mm -hmm. from Judaism as we know it in Israel? Mm -hmm. How come? They're all Jews. They came, many of them, from the same places in Eastern Europe. Why did it develop in such different ways? So those were my three audiences, and that, of course, continues uh, in the second uh, edition. Uh, But a lot's happened in 15 years, and I have to say, uh, when began working on it, realized how much uh, had changed and how much we'd experienced um, and there were whole topics that didn't like LBGT, LGBTQ, uh, um, uh, that uh, uh, that didn't get in to the earlier volume, but I wanted to make sure would be in a very important and uh, the whole world of American Jews in Israel 
is very different than when I last wrote about it. Conservative movement is so different. So there was, I wasn't short of material uh, really to cover. Um, and I also wanted readers to know that there was a lot of new literature in the field and um, uh, what that new literature really was. Uh, I wasn't going to totally rewrite the book mm -hmm. on the basis of the new literature, uh, but it seemed to me that uh, much had been learned and there's been a lot of interest mm -hmm. in American Judaism uh, over the last 15 years. Some of it, I'd like to think, even stimulated by the book. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, uh, so now students can get a sense, oh, there's new literature, and in a few cases, uh, um, uh, there are things that uh, oh, I've changed my mind on, or new scholarship has changed my mind, and mm. wanted to highlight that uh, really as well. So those were the two big reasons for mm. changing. A lot has happened, and also to incorporate new scholarship. New scholarship. Okay. Um, so I'm going to backtrack a little, and I'm going to ask you, uh, I want to quote from Rabbi Harold Kushner on mm -hmm. the front of the page, and I, that was intriguing to me before I went into the book. He says, an eminently readable blend of fact and interpretation, objectivity, and optimism. Now, given this is a description of a history, it it. I want to ask a meta question. What kind of history is this? Is it a history in which you personally are invested? And as a sequel to that question, right? Uh, optimism. Well, how can how, how can a history be optimistic, right? So it's clear that there is some kind of subjective element to history, as there all there always is. Um, so as a sequel to that question, what what's your investment in this? is tell us something about your biography and the position of your family mm -hmm. with regard to Jewish American, the Jewish American Jewish world. So um, I don't really think anybody who comes to writing is fully objective. Yeah. We strive for objectivity, but it's something uh, none of us ever uh, are fully able to do uh, readable that I was very happy that I, I worked hard on the writing of yeah. the book Beautiful. to make it readable uh, and uh, uh, similarly I think the idea that history is just a bunch of facts that's mm -hmm. a very old-fashioned idea that's really mm -hmm. annals uh, we study the past in order to gain some understanding about the present and uh, I have long felt that the history of American Judaism, like the history of American religion generally, mm. is a history of uh, uh, revivals followed by uh, spiritual depressions mm. and then another revival. In mm. other words, it's in some ways cyclical that's mm. different than the way a lot of Jews see it. Um, uh, American Jews often view the history as 
linear declension. Oh, everyone started off orthodox and, you know, they end up intermarrying. I, uh, if you actually think about families, it's rarely that way. Maybe there's one person who went that way and one person, oh, he became so orthodox. His parents couldn't understand what happened. And yes. the real story indeed uh, is that religion is a journey mm -hmm. and Judaism in America has been a journey with mm -hmm. ups and downs. And I think that continues. And I was very eager to make that point that pretty well every generation has worried mm. that theirs would be the last generation mm. of Jews. They will never, our children will, will vanish. And in many ways, that fear uh, has been uh, what's kept Judaism going. We all feel we've got to work very hard. And uh, uh, somehow an, uh, or, or other, uh, each generation has managed to keep it going, and very often uh, we have seen innovative ideas designed uh, to counter whatever uh, the, the threat du jour is. Uh, now, obviously, uh, I came in an interesting place to American Judaism. Um, uh, the Sarna family, my, my late father, um, uh, was a very significant uh, Jewish Bible scholar. He was not himself born in America. In fact, I'm actually the only member of my immediate family, meaning my parents and my brother. I'm the only one who was born in America, and uh, my parents born in England, previous generation in Eastern Europe. And um, maybe because, uh, uh, you know, my parents were immigrants, I was interested in understanding America, I think uh, my own parents uh, somewhat struggled to understand American uh, Judaism, even in England. It really wasn't a conservative Judaism, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, reform didn't have the place it had in America. And of course, they had grown up with a chief rabbi. Well, why wasn't there a chief rabbi? Uh, in uh in america um question <laughs> maybe we'll come back, we'll come back. i feel yeah. very fortunate that over the course of my own life i have as an insider mm. been in all three of the major movements um uh, grew up uh, at the jewish theological seminary uh, attended orthodox schools member of an Orthodox synagogue. I taught for 11 years at the Reform Hebrew Union College and know the reform movement well. Um, I was fond of saying, I have the emails of the presidents of Yeshiva University, Jewish Theological <laughs> Seminary, Hebrew Union College. And um, uh, of course, uh, I, I've known many of the heads of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College uh, as, as well. Um, so I felt I was, as an insider, did understand uh, these movements, and that in a lot of ways I was uh, uniquely able uh, to talk about uh, the movements, knowing people within them. Um, and that was one of the reasons why I undertook to write about uh, American Judaism. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously, I'm an insider, 
most people, I think, who write uh, about American religions, Catholicism, uh, you know, different denominations, are insiders. There are benefits that come from being an insider. There are benefits that come from being an outsider. One of the reasons that I talked a little bit about my place in the field uh, in the preface so that the reader knows um, uh, where I am uh, coming from. Um, but at the same time, I have formally studied American religion at Yale with the late Sidney Olstrom, uh, really uh, one of the great scholars of American religion. And I was very eager to show how Judaism was part of American religion and how there were parallels to different denominations and so on. So, um, uh, you know, and I've still tried um, to understand from the inside what American uh, Judea Judaism is like and and uh, one of the advantages really of my position is that I have known uh, people uh, in a lot of different places in Jewish life and uh, uh, I, you know I'm able to write about them uh, because I followed them and that's true all the way to the present. I want to shift to the history. Mm -hmm. You begin the book really 350 years ago mm -hmm. with the advent of colonialism, but I want to skip a couple of centuries mm -hmm. and situate ourselves in the 19th century mm -hmm. where you trace the two strands or two trends within American Judaism. One is the return to traditionalism. And the other is adaptation, mm -hmm. uh, orthodoxy, and reform. Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps you can tell us about two prominent figures in the 19th century. Tell us mm -hmm. their story, uh, the altercation between the two. Um, you know, I invite you to, to tell us something about the flavor of what was going on there. What were the major issues that American Jews were facing? I'll talk about Isaac Leeser and Isaac Mayer Wise, the two great Isaacs of, uh, um, there. Um, but before doing so, I do think it's important to understand that you know, early Marian Jews didn't use the word orthodoxy at all. They wouldn't have known. Yes. You only have orthodox Jews when you have someone who's heterodox, and then you say, no, you're heterodox, I'm orthodox. Early American Jews... It was uh, really, for a long time, just one synagogue in each community. I'm a Jew. I belong to that synagogue. The synagogue and the community were one. And the so, big movement of change, the big moment, is in the 1820s, 1820s. when that synagogue community collapses. Uh, Which and synagogue it, is it again? Well, it collapses in two cities, and, that's, and the two biggest cities where Jews live uh, first... Um, Charleston, the famous Charleston Reform Movement, and then New York. Um, and um, I would say that 
it's not accident that it's young American-born Jews who brought about, uh, in both cases, the uh, secession from uh, the synagogue community. Um, they looked around. They said there are many ways of being Protestant. Why can't there be many ways of being Jewish? Um, I think after the American Revolution, um, there was a real democratization in the culture, and these young Jews wanted to see some of those ideas reflected in Judaism, uh, no question, especially in Charleston, some of these young people were influenced by Protestant liberalism in Charleston by Unitarianism. Um, uh, but even in New York, where the young people were much uh, more traditional, um, they wanted to deviate from the synagogue's tradition may not have been Jewish law, but they wanted, you know, an early morning service with explanations. And of course, from the point of view of the congregation, no tradition is what holds us together. And they said, well, we don't think our children are going to be want to be part of this. And there are other factors, as there always are, but they up and out. And at that point, that's the Humpty Dumpty moment, mm. meaning... Um, uh, once it's cracked, you, you never have unity again. And within a very short time in every community, um, uh, you have multiple synagogues by the Civil War. Big Jewish communities will have four or more uh, synagogues reflecting different uh, traditions, uh, in some cases, or reform ideas in the other. Now, then you had <clears throat> these two major figures um, in Philadelphia, Isaac Leeser, uh, who is a traditionalist. He's actually born uh, in what would be Germany, but he, um, for much of his career, is what they call the minister of Mikveh Israel Congregation. And than of his own congregation, but of a Sephardic congregation. But what's interesting about Isaac Leeser is his sense that we can use the printing press to educate Jews. We will create the basic books, the prayer book, the Bible, textbooks, um, uh, other volumes in English, he translated books. We will use the printing press to unite a scattered jury. And of course, he creates a journal, the first great news magazine known as The Occident. There was one in Europe called The Orient. He called his The Occident. And... Um, uh, and at the same time, he uh, really, uh, as a rabbi, is going to bring in the sermon, an English language sermon every week. So he is willing to make certain changes. But his central goal and his belief is that 
if we keep to Jewish law, but transform the language and above all, educate American Jews, then um, that will be the key to Judaism's survival. Um, somewhat later, uh, also from uh, Germany, really, Bohemia, uh, comes the other Isaac, Isaac Mayer Wise. Uh, Isaac Mayer Wise has been deeply influenced already in Europe by reformist trends. Um, uh, like Isaac Leeser, he learns English very quickly in America, but he disagrees with Leeser. He argues, you know, the way to save Judaism is by changing Judaism. Unless Judaism modernizes, it will not survive. So um, he becomes really the architect of American Reform Judaism. He, too, uses the printing press. Uh, he has his own newspaper. It's a weekly. The other was only a monthly. Uh, uh, he, the, the, the Israelite, later the American Israelite, as it's called, is his newspaper. And he creates great institutions. Um, uh, he's going to um, uh, really create a rabbinical seminary so that American uh, American Jews don't have to rely on the importation of rabbis. They can train their own rabbis. That's a kind of independence. Uh, that's Hebrew Union College. Um, he's involved in trying to create a congregational union even before Hebrew Union College won 1873, won 1875 the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, as it's then known today, the Union of Reform Judaism. And later, he's going to be involved in the Central Conference of American Rabbis. Uh, but his idea is that um, uh, we will create these institutions, we will unify Jews. A lot of his institutions had the word union, but he imagined uh, that Judaism would change so that it would survive. And he calls his prayer book, he creates a new prayer book, not a traditional prayer book. He calls it by the interesting name Minhag America, the custom of American Jews. He doesn't call it the custom of Reformed Jews. Uh, but anyone who looks at it will see it has much more English. It's radically changed certain prayers. Uh, but he thought and believed that in time, all American Jews would take up this new American, Minhag American custom with its center in Cincinnati, then the fastest growing city in many ways in the world, certainly in America, uh, prior to the Civil War and uh, that he was creating a new Judaism for a new city, um, and uh, that that would be the right direction. He thought uh, that Isaac Leeser's traditionalism simply wouldn't work, or, although when you look carefully, you see that both of these men were using new technology, the printing press mm -hmm. later, the railroad, they both travel enormously. Mm -hmm. 
um, in order uh, to strengthen Jewish life, and both do strengthen Jewish life uh, in in different ways. Mm, interesting. I want to move a little forward in time to the great wave of mm -hmm. immigration from Eastern Europe, which brought a whole nother kind of influence with it. So the Chafetz Chaim um, actually warned people not to immigrate to America. It was called the Trefa Medina, right? The, the right, that's something, right. the, the Trefa land, the, the non-kosher land. Um, what were some of the influences on European, the great wave of European Jews when they came in? Mm -hmm. um, and how did they, how did uh, perhaps the, the whole burgeoning of secular Jewish, mm -hmm. Yiddishkeit, uh, mm -hmm. uh, how is that uh, manifesting itself? So, so certainly the story of American Judaism is a story of immigration. It's mm -hmm. worth stepping back and 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 remembering that in 1840 there may be 15,000 uh, Jews uh, in America. Uh, by 1940, that's just a century later, you have uh, about 4.8 million yeah. Jews in America. Yeah. Um, so... Um, it reminds you, uh, but even if you look earlier, 1840, 15,000 Jews, by 1880, a quarter of a million. So immigration is is coming on, the first wave being Central Europe, but absolutely, uh, although we certainly had East European Jews earlier, um, with the assassination of Alexander II, the, the pogroms, uh, in Russia, the economic um, catastrophe really for Jews uh, in Russia. Uh, we have more and more uh, East European Jews who either come to America as refugees or come to America as their golden Medina. We use the phrase the unkosher land from the Chafetz Chaim. Others said, no, no, it's the golden land. And, of course, it's both in some ways. Um, uh, but they want to come as a land of opportunity. And America is growing very fast. Uh, there are plenty of jobs in America. Um, there are not jobs for them, uh, partly because of strict discriminatory laws and some partly because of of economic backwardness. There are not jobs in Eastern Europe. Uh, they find jobs very quickly uh, in America. And then, of course, that leads more and more people to come. And until America's immigration laws cut off, or at least greatly diminish uh, the uh, coming of Jews uh, in 1924, uh, although really, World War One is going to lead to a decline. Then you're going to have a, a rush of Jews who could foresee that America's mm -hmm. gates were closing right after the war. You'll set family reunification after World War One, 1924. Um, it's much much harder. There are people who come, 
but um, uh, it's about less than a fifteen percent of what's coming early of what's coming earlier. In other words, you have well over a hundred thousand Jews a year coming in the first decades of the the twentieth century, which is astonishing. Um, and uh, it's then going to uh, uh, fall back and in the 30s fall even more to less than 10,000. So um, uh, it's a tremendous collapse. It's no accident. People often forget this. 1924 immigration is cut off. The very first year, well, uh, let's come back to me. You've made the point. 1924 immigration is cut off in America. The very next year is the first year that more Jews go to the land of Israel mm -hmm. than come to America. And that's worth remembering that one of the reasons for increasing immigration to the land of Israel is that it's perfectly clear America is not going to be an open refuge for all the Jews uh, who, uh, who want to leave. Now, why is immigration cut off? Same reason that you have anti-immigration sentiment today. Oh, the, Jew, the Jews and the Catholics are changing America, and they're going to be unassimilable, and, uh, um, you know, they're a drain on the country, and so on. Of course, looking back, uh, we know uh, the very opposite was the case, that they and their children were a great boon to America, created all sorts of um, uh, new industries and intellectual life and jobs and were great success. But unfortunately, that lesson is has to be relearned over and over. And nativism, xenophobia, fear of immigration has run uh, through American history. Uh, you had, after all, an Alien and Sedition Act way back in the days of John Adams, and repeatedly we have um, uh, the, 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 the uh, people who fear immigrants changing America, uh, not realizing they've often changed it for the better, um, and so it was in the 20s, but of course by then America had already been changed, as they say, they, that the horse was out of the barn, the Catholics and the Jews were changing. America, and America is going to have many more non-Protestants. Uh, it's going to have a different character. It's going to be much more heavily urban. It's going to have a lot of new industries um, uh, that these folks are, um, are, are creating. But between the 1880s and the 1920s, you have this massive immigration of Jews from Eastern Europe, they they dwarf the earlier Germanic immigration and really change the character of American Jewish life from uh, a community that had been rather German, um, with ideas from Germany and so on, a, a Louis Brandeis, I have to mention him once yes. each time, <laughs> uh, it's in my contract, but a Louis Brandeis <laughs> deeply influenced by Germany and one can see all sorts of habits, even the way he accounts for every penny uh, to the end of his life. That's very German. 
and Louis Brandeis' uh, parents belonged to Reform Congregate and he hardly went to synagogue at all. Um, I, in many ways, he reflects um, a Germanic heritage. These East European Jews, they're Yiddish-speaking, um, uh, some of them are Orthodox, some of them have fled Orthodoxy in Europe already and uh, are secular or, uh, and, and cultural um, uh, uh, Jews, and they're going to settle heavily on the Lower East Side, but actually they're going to dominate uh, Easter, uh, uh, certainly Eastern uh, Jewish communities. And suddenly the Reform Movement, which in the 1880 thought it was the future of Judaism, it's the custom of American Jews, suddenly it moves from being the largest movement to being the smallest movement. And for... Well, all these... East Right, exactly. The East European Jews found Reform Judaism strange and in some ways alienating. Um, so orthodoxy is going to be the largest initially in many orthodox congregations. And then a new, very fast-growing movement, conservative Judaism. Now, initially, conservative never imagined it was going to be a movement. Indeed, they thought, well, you're either liberal or conservative, just like uh, Gilbert and Sullivan. Everybody's one or the other. And they thought there would be a kind of big tent of non-reform Judaism. But over time, uh, for reasons that I talk about in the book, um, uh, we move from a two-movement Judaism to a three-movement uh, Judaism, and conservative Judaism uh, becomes the Judaism kind of, of people in the center, but it's worth remembering that between World War One and uh, the early 1970s, it's the fastest growing movement in Jewish life, and of course they thought, oh, we're going to be the future of uh, Judaism. Um, the the uh, and, 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 you know, Jewish life changes. And then, of course, the reform movement, understanding um, that if they want to succeed, they've got to accommodate all of these East European Jews. And they do. Uh, uh, first, there are rabbis from Eastern Europe who become reform rabbis. Bar Mitzvah is brought back. Lots of other traditions are brought in. Uh, there are people who talk about neo-reform Judaism, and over time, uh, a, a, a movement that had once been very Central European as opposed to East European becomes uh, a very significant movement that embraces a whole spectrum of Jews from different from different locales. So what is a Jewish awakening? Describe what was happening in the 19th century. Why do you call it an awakening? And what are the manifestations of that perhaps today? 
uh, I think we've had several such movements in Jewish life in the 1870s. Um, young Jews, they think, uh, you know, Judaism isn't going to survive. There's been a kind of spiritual recession. Um, they um, see that Reform Judaism they don't think is for them. Um, and they decide if Judaism is going to continue, we've got to find a way of exciting young Jews about it. And then, of course, you see the beginning of anti-Semitism and the very word coming in the 1870s. And that's a surprise here. They thought, well, if we change, we'll be accepted. Everyone will love us. And they discover, oh, that didn't quite happen. Uh, it's very similar to some developments of our own day where Jews are very surprised to discover anti-Semitism. And this leads people to um, say, well, we ought to learn more about our Judaism. Let's find out what's going on here. Uh, and so these young Jews create a whole series of um, Jewish students. They create, of course, a newspaper, of young Jewish newspaper, the American Hebrew, one of the great uh, newspapers in American history, which is full of educational materials and literary materials in addition to news. Um, uh, they're going to create the Jewish Theological Seminary. Um, uh, they are uh, later going to be central in the Jewish Encyclopedia. Uh, many are women, uh, and a lot of those women feel, oh, well, we can play a big role in educating Jews. And after all, we're in charge of the family. The National Council of Jewish Women, which originally is educational, and of course Hadassah is mm. all the same people. When you look at the names, you realize that these were people, Henrietta Zoll, very yeah. significant, Cyrus Adler, very significant. They're involved in one organization after another, but all with the same aims to revitalize and awaken American jury, and these folks realize that America is going to become a leading center of Jewish life. That means it needs books, and it needs educational centers, and it, it needs to be training Jewish leaders uh, for this role. And in that sense, they were far-sighted, because that is it's exactly what happened sooner than they could have known. So that's a moment of, uh, of awakening, and it's easy to see how different American Judaism looks at the end of that period, say, beginning of World War I, than it had looked in the 1870s. But actually, um, I feel I lived through such a time um, in uh, beginning in the 1970s, you had young Jews, and they they become Baalei Tshuva, as they call it, which is really born again Jews. Uh, they're deeply interested, and uh, they publish the Jewish catalog, yeah. 
and they rediscover ritual, and they create new kinds of synagogues, which they call chavurot, prayer, uh, worship, and they bring in the word spirituality, hardly known in Jewish life uh, before then, and they create a real revolution. Lots of institutions are created, um, and um, I knew any number of, uh, of Jews who were much more religiously engaged than their parents. Uh, in the nature of things, such revolutions always burn out. I think American Judaism and a lot of American religion is in a kind of spiritual depression today. Um, but that's, of course, when the seeds of the next revival are sown all sorts of ideas uh, of young people, always young people who feel they can save American Jewish life. And we see all sorts of young people with big ideas for uh, whether it's uh, uh, you know, Hadar or Maharat or all sorts of institutions, uh, Hebrew Kanu, Hebrew Transformed Hebrew College, all sorts of institutions that uh, we never heard of before uh, that feel, well, we are sowing the seeds for the next revival. We've got big ideas. Uh, and, and one of the organizations, the Jewish Emergent Network, that's listed in the second edition, didn't exist in the first, the very word emergent. We are the future, and we are planning the future. Um, and, and that's what keeps American Judaism going, and that's what keeps it vibrant. And although, you know, each group thinks, oh, those old guys, they're fuddy-duddies, uh, one of the things I wanted to show was, actually, this this cycle has happened time and again, and uh, young people have come in with new ideas, uh, in the nature of things, eventually they get old, or their and and their descendants come up with new ideas. Um, uh, but I do see that as the real story of American Judaism, rather than a linear story, uh, which is so widely believed. I want to uh, address. Um, you mentioned that you had a third audience in mind, mm -hmm. and that is Israeli readers. Mm -hmm. So this has been translated into Hebrew. Mm -hmm. And I wonder about its reception in Israel. Have people reviewed it? Are they mm -hmm. reading it? And part of that is to zoom out and consider what is the relationship between American Judaism and Zionism? Mm -hmm. Are they in conflict with each other? Is there tension? Does that shift in Forty-eight in nineteen sixty-seven. What is it? Well, so those are different. Let me take them up. Yeah, I know we'll get to all of them, but let me start with the Hebrew edition. I always had hoped. I always had hoped. Yahadut America, Merkaz Shazar. I always wanted a Hebrew edition, and with the help, I should say, the American Jewish Committee was able. Uh, to uh, have a translator, and Merkaz Shazar was very eager for the book to appear in Hebrew as a one volume. Um, 
And um, while the first uh, review was very disconcerting for me because the author said, uh, oh, uh, I had much more fun reading World of Our Fathers by Irving Howe. Well, two books couldn't be more different than my book uh, and uh, Irving Howe's book, I mean, uh, on a different subject and so on. Uh, but that's all he knew about American Jewry. Uh, and, uh, but later, I learned that all of the Israeli universities really uh, use uh, my book for teaching American Judaism. And one of the great moments for me was when a very, very distinguished uh, Israeli historian uh, met me for the first time and said, I didn't understand America, American Jewry, till I read uh, your book. And uh, I would say um, uh, that Micha Goodman, a very significant scholar and writer, uh, he wouldn't mind my saying it. He's told it to me more than once that you know he was able through my book to understand American uh, Judaism. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that's what he told me. So, I, you know, I don't think you learn it by osmosis no. or by your parents. Absolutely so, uh, I, think, I didn't understand American yeah. Judaism. Uh, so. and, you know, because I also, my Judaism yeah. uh, comes from my Jewish experience. So, yeah, so, you know, so I was very, very happy. And part of, I would say, what I've tried to do in my life is to help uh, Israelis understand American Jewry, and uh, now I head of the Schustman Center, help uh, 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 a lot of Jews in America and elsewhere understand Israel. I'd like to see both understand the other. Now, uh, of course, um, I did uh, discuss Zionism here, and uh, although there is a different book about American Zionism, uh, it's important to see that American Zionists didn't imagine that American Jews would settle in Israel. In that sense, it's not classic Zionism at all. They understood a lot of persecuted Jews couldn't come to America. We'd better get a place where they could come. Um, but what they did believe following Achad uh, Ha'am was that if there was a great center, spiritual center in Israel, that would greatly benefit American Jews, and that Zionism itself would strengthen American Jewish life. And of course, Hadassah proves how true that was. In other words, Zionism gave American Jews a great mission. I, I would say I think one of the sad elements of American Jewish life today is that we don't have such a unifying mission. Uh, but for a lot of Jews in the United States, not all, but for a lot of them, the creation of a Jewish state with their persecuted relatives uh, could go um, and be safe and flourish. That was the great mission that existed. Um, it existed for a lot of Jews for a long time, through the Six-Day War, I would say, but of course is much less true, uh, as much less true today. And to that extent, 
American Jewish life is the poorer. Um, to tell something about the city, I'm shift gears um, to the modern time. So tell us something a little bit about the Pew Report, the mm -hmm. recent Pew mm -hmm. Report, and um, what trends you're seeing now in response to that. Panic sets in. Right. And there's a new revitalization. So, what kind? What What do you make of the Q report, and what trends are you seeing that will take us into the twenty? I mean, the Pew, of course, is uh, you know, now uh, five, six years old. In my own senses, it's very dated. They've begun talking about a new one. I did uh, have to bring into the second edition all of those numbers from the Pew. I mean, I think for a lot of people, the uh, issues in a marriage were important, the great decline of the conservative movement, uh, which is a reminder that in a free country, movements can go up and movements can go down. No Jewish religious movement in America should rest on its laurels. And the minute you think, oh, the future is mine, uh, that's a, a danger sign. And um, uh, I think the Pew was very interesting to people for noting the large number of young Jews who don't affiliate with any movement, this term spiritual but not religious. Um, I think, uh, as some interpreters of the Pew show, we begin to see the vast impact of intermarriage, the children of intermarrieds um, responding somewhat differently. Um, and clearly we see that one of our challenges, uh, one of the challenges the American Jewish community is, will it be able to preserve uh, at least half of those children of intermarried um, so that uh, they will be Jewish, uh, and uh, you know what will be the impact. And certainly, um, intermarriage is talked about differently in the community than it was before. I think um, the children of intermarried also help to explain certain elements of the change towards Israel uh, that we. Uh, have have witnessed, especially uh, since many of them know that they themselves could not marry in Israel. So it's rather hard for them to feel about Israel the way an earlier generation did. Um, but on the other hand, uh, the Pew certainly did not see or suspect the sudden resurgence of anti-Semitism. Um, uh, and, um, you know, the very last thing I smuggled into American Judaism in the chronology, in the proofs, was um, uh, Pittsburgh, was the, uh, the, oh, the wow. shooting at Tree of Life. You and I, I, I did yeah. it, I don't know how many people will notice it, but it's in the chronology. I did it deliberately because I had a sense that's a real turning point. You can't rewrite the book. Maybe someday there'll be a third edition and one will write about 
the impact of anti-Semitism. I think it's much too early to understand that impact, but were we to look at earlier examples like the Kishinev pogrom, uh, it would be easy to see a vast impact, and I have seen just in teaching uh, young Jews thinking about Judaism in a very different way. A lot of earlier students thought anti-Semitism was past. It was history. There's a book, The End of Anti-Semitism in America, and uh, books about how Jews have become white people. Uh, and now uh, uh, it turns out that at least the white supremacists certainly don't see Jews as white people like them. And uh, no serious person thinks that it's the end of anti-Semitism. We see it both on the left and on the right. Uh, and um, I think that's a reminder of how quickly Jewish life changes. And that's been true throughout American Jewish history. It really is a story of change. And that's why I think it's so important for American Jews to know that history. When you live it, it seems static. Sometimes it seems like it's not changing fast enough. But when you look back, it's astonishing how quickly it has changed. I felt that writing about it, and I feel that today.